Chapter Thirty Three of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Fredericksburg. In a few weeks, the paroled prisoners, having been exchanged, were ordered back to their commands. By that time, the army had retreated, all unmolested, through the valley of Piedmont, Virginia, had massed at Warrington, and then taken up the line of march to Fredericksburg. The rations were ample, the clothing warm, and the morale of the army was excellent. In those two months, the two great armies had exactly reversed posts on the program. The rebels had ceased attacking and were acting on the defensive, and their foe, no longer anxious about the safety of their national capital, but strong in numbers and flushed with the hope of putting a speedy end to the war, had become the assailants, were ready to try conclusions once more, and determined to force the fighting. The scene had changed from the green fields of Maryland to the heights along the Rappahannock. The summer breeze which had swept over the field of Sharpsburg was now the keen, searching blast which carried frost upon its wings. The leaves which had danced in the sunshine were strewing the ground thickly in their dying, rustling to the eddying winds and to the rabbit's tread. On November the 7th, McClellan, the organizer of the army, and its savior too, was relieved from command and Burnside appointed in his place. General Burnside differed from all his predecessors in one important matter of opinion. McDowell, McClellan, and Pope had all expressed their convictions that the rout of the rebel army should be the great desideratum. Burnside, on the contrary, contended that the capture of Richmond was ever the great object to be desired, and with that idea fully ingrained in his mind, he determined to march in a straight line from Washington to Richmond and capture the rebel capital. Putting his columns in motion, he reached the banks of the Rappahannock opposite Fredericksburg on the 17th of November, but was delayed for two weeks by the failure of pontoons to arrive. This delay was fatal, for at the end of that time, Lee had taken up his position and stood directly in his path. Fredericksburg is a quiet, sleepy little town, looking like New Amsterdam when the redoubtable Van Twiller was its governor nearly two hundred years ago. It rests upon the branch of the river which, with a general course northeast to southeast, makes a sharp bend a mile above Fredericksburg and for some distance runs between the heights upon either side. Those on the east fall steeply to the river bank. On the west, the hills in the rear of the town rise about a mile from the river and then trend away until they sink into the valley of the Massaponnox, six miles below, leaving an irregular plain some two miles wide in its broadest part. Westward, the hills rise in a succession of low wooded ridges until they are lost in the wooded region known as the wilderness. On the crest of these ridges lay the half of Lee's army under Longstreet. D. H. Hill was posted at Port Royal twenty miles down the river. Between them lay Jackson, ready to support either wing. Burnside had determined to cross near or at Fredericksburg, and December the 11th had been the time appointed for the attempt. His plan was to throw three bridges across at Fredericksburg and then move to a point three miles below. The attempt to lay the upper bridges was savagely resisted by Barksdale's brigade of Mississippians, and for a time delayed, but they were brushed away at last, and the work finished. The whole day of the twelfth was spent in getting the men over, thus giving Lee time to bring up Jackson's corps. 
It was no part of Lee's plan to dispute the passage, as he wished to receive the attack on his strong position. The extreme rebel left, above Fredericksburg, was protected by a mill pond, sluiceway, and canal, the bridge having been destroyed, and here the attack could only be made upon Mary's Hill, which rises steeply a little behind Fredericksburg. On the 13th, General Burnside had in line of battle over 100,000 men, besides a heavy reserve of some 20,000 on the other side. Lee's strength was about 25,000. Official report of Major General Burnside. The attack was made all along the line, but early repulsed. Burnside tried to break the rebel line by repeated and continuous charges upon Mary's Hill, but was driven back each time with fearful carnage. Finding his efforts futile, he abandoned the attempt, and the next night retreated, recrossing his pontoons and leaving 12,250 men behind him in killed and wounded and missing. Report of Adjutant General of Army of Potomac. The rebel loss was 5,309. Our brigade was not actively engaged during the day. Indeed, not a third part of the army was in the fight. We were held as a reserve and witnessed the attack on our left. We lay on our arms the night of the 12th, listening to the noise made by the enemy in crossing. The 17th was full in ranks again, and was looking very differently from the slim, weak line that was crouching behind the fence in the last battle. The morning of Saturday, December 13th, broke with a heavy fog resting in the valley and hiding each army from the other. As the sun rose, the thick vapor slowly lifted from the ground, unfolding a splendid display, as in a group we stood on the crest of the hill on the right and in the rear of Mary's Hill, watching with absorbing interest the panorama. Across the river on the lofty heights could be seen the stars and stripes floating in the wind. The earthworks with their huge guns were outlined against the sky. At our feet lay the ancient town of Fredericksburg, filled with bluecoats, who seemed to swarm like bees in a hive, as in large bodies they marched out and took positions. About ten in the morning the battle opened on our right, A.P. Hill's division receiving the attack and beating back the enemy, while all the time the Yankee batteries on the heights were keeping up a continuous fire. Then came the charge on Mary's Hill. Had the enemy known against what he was running, he would never have made such a hopeless effort, or one that involved such a sacrifice of life. Mary's Hill is about fifty yards high, and slopes abruptly toward the city to a stone wall which forms a terrace on the side of the hill, and the outer margin of a road which winds along its foot leading to Hamilton Crossing. The road is about twenty-five feet wide, and is faced by a stone wall some four feet high on the side nearest the city. Standing on Mary's Hill, such is the sudden slope that the road at its foot is not discernible. The house, a handsome old Virginia residence, is built on the top of the hill facing Fredericksburg, with a long wide porch extending the length of the house in front. Beneath the roof was born and reared the colonel of our regiment, who had been so severely wounded in the Second Battle of Manassas. Once the scene of hospitality and that courtly elegance found in the old families of Virginia, it was now dismantled and awaited the fate which seemed in store. The once large family which had gathered within its walls was scattered, as were the residents of but too many southern homes. 
the large lawn bounded by the stone wall and sunken road in front lay stripped of all the grand old trees which formerly contributed so much toward the beauty of the place standing on the porch one could trace the winding of the road from the town rising till it passed at right angles the stone wall road and met on the left of the lawn the brampton gate for that was the name by which the place had ever been known from which a broad carriage drive led to the entrance overlooking the town the crest of mary's hill was now crowned by two batteries of artillery while about fifty guns were placed a half mile back to enfilade all the approaches which must be made in an open plain over three hundred yards wide the sunken road like the ditch of a fortress afforded complete protection and perfect security to the troops within kershaw's division occupied this cut standing in double ranks or four deep what chance had flesh and blood to carry by storm such a position garrisoned too as it was with veteran soldiers not one chance in a million in company with bob willis we straggled to the front and lay in the rear of the washington artillery of new orleans which hurled grape and canister at the attacking force all that day we watched the fruitless charges with their fearful slaughter until we were sick at heart as i witnessed one line swept away by one fearful blast from kershaw's men behind the stone wall i forgot they were enemies and only remembered that they were men and it is hard to see in cold blood brave men die just before sunset everything being quiet along the line many of the reserve without orders crowded to the front and were spectators of that last forlorn hope led by the gallant humphreys in front was meagre's brigade of irishmen who marched to their death like men who knew no fear they cared little for shot or shell they laughed at death and dangers and they'd storm the very gates of hell would the gallant irish rangers history records no more dauntless valorous advance than the reckless charge of meagre every soldier knew the rebel position was impregnable they had seen charge after charge repulsed they had seen brigade after brigade rush forward with deadly determination only to recoil before the hailstorm of iron and of lead their very route lay over a field where the dead lay thick as the leaves in valambrosia and yet not an irishman in the brigade as far as we could see left his place in the ranks from the hill back to the heights the division of pickett watched the advance filled with wonder and a pitying admiration for men who could rush with such unflinching valor such mad recklessness into the jaws of destruction a brave man dies but once a coward dies a thousand times none of the bitterness of death was theirs as with steady step and heads erect they came toward that bristling crest so ominously silent across the plain with no martial music to thrill them only a stillness that would strike terror into spirits less gallant across the plain still onward sweeps the dauntless brigade with serried lines and gleaming steel it was superb still closer they advanced while twice one thousand veterans lay behind yon stone wall with eyes ranged along the deadly barrel and fingers pressing the trigger men held their breath there was no smoke or battle fume to obstruct the view nor wood to mask the movement but as in a grand review the whole advance could be seen in all its glory and in all its horror the brigade came on a run and bent as it moved until it was the shape of a half moon with the concave toward the town batteries opened upon them and then broke out the murderous musketry 
Men staggered, reeled, and fell, but the others pushed on. From the wall and road came a living sheet of fire. Still the Irish rushed forward, but at every foot they dropped by scores. Some almost reached the wall, and then fell dead with their feet to the foe. Human nature could stand no more, for the number of killed was fast counting up by thousands, and half of them were down. The ranks broke, and each man sought safety in flight. Another solid line emerged to support the first, but did not advance half the distance before it went to pieces under the fire. In fifteen minutes the battle was all over. The ground was covered with the fallen, three thousand, and the Battle of Fredericksburg was ended. Of the twelve hundred I led into action, only two hundred eighty appeared at parade the next morning. Brigadier General Meagher's Official Report Never in the annals of grand exploits has this charge ever been surpassed. Tradition has thrown a halo of romance over Arthur and his knights. Poetry has enshrined, in imperishable luster, the charge of the six hundred at Balaclava. But greater than this was Meagher's advance, for a man's courage is in ratio with his motion. It is far easier to ride to the death with the shrill blare of the bugle ringing in the ears, rushing on in a wild excitement which keeps up with the mad gallop of the bounding horse, but to advance step by step with unloaded guns, to leave the world with the blood beating temperately in the veins, required courage indeed. Ireland may well have wept for her sons that day, but the cypress was twined with laurel. The butchery over, the night came. Another day, and toward evening, ammunition, forty rounds, was served out. There was little rest among the troops, for they were expecting to advance. The dawn found the men bewildered and dazed. Why had they not gone forward and taken the Federals in the trap? Ah, why indeed? The Army of the Potomac was caught in a trap, caged as it were, within a narrow space from which there was no escape. There was the little town crowded and packed with men, a rapid river in their rear, across which was only a frail line of pontoons, as useless in this hour of emergency as Mohammed's bridge from earth to paradise. There lay the enemy with our artillery commanding every exit, and ready at a moment's notice to throw into the town, among the mass of soldiers, shell and shot from nearly a hundred guns. Well might the northern army have feared. What could they have done if this tempest had rained upon them? Advance was impossible, retreat equally so. All that would have remained for them would have been to stand and die in their tracks or to surrender. The nights of the 13th and 14th of December were indeed pregnant with the fate of the two contending people. Was there no voice in earth or sky to whisper into the ear of the sleeping captain, the man with the gray beard and the eagle eye, and bid him wake and strike? No, the minutes come and go. The wind sweeps over the bare plains, chilling the wounded and freezing his blood as it drips slowly from his veins. It brings no echo of the faintest footfall of the fast-flying army. The guns upon the hills that might have uttered a protest with tongues of flame seem to be as deep in slumber as the men beside them. Still the minutes come and go when every second is precious, and only the stars see the hurrying ranks of blue, filing in almost frenzied haste over the pontoons, with army blankets piled ten deep to muffle the rapid tread of feet and the rumbling of the artillery over the swaying bridge. 
so the precious moments are accumulating into hours while the vanquished host steals noiselessly away man by man company by company regiment by regiment brigade by brigade division by division corps by corps all traversing the narrow way unmolested winning safety by degrees at last when the northern light heralded the dawn and roused the quiet rebel army it saw the rear guard of their foe file across the bridge and the foe was safe had general lee opened all his guns in the night and charged with his infantry then then well the privates around the campfire thought their hour of victory had come at last from that hour to this day they could not understand why uncle robert let the chance slip and did not allow them to end the war there with one bold rush jackson with the inspiration of genius wanted to advance in the night he expected and made his preparations in event of the repulse of burnside general lindsey walker his chief of artillery told me that when he opened his guns and ordered his horses to the rear jackson rode up and ordered him to let the horses stay but general said the tall artilleryman half of the horses will be killed no matter curtly responded stonewall keep them with the guns the horses were kept as directed in all the terrible fire which said general walker showed me that jackson intended to advance that night like napoleon at leipzig lee let a golden chance slip by his medical doctor dr hunter mcguire states that jackson asked him on the night of the battle how many rolls of cotton bandages and compresses he had in stock and upon the doctor replying that there was enough for the wounded jackson impatiently replied that he supposed he had but he wanted to know if there was enough to tie around the arm of every man in his command later on jackson admitted to him that it was his purpose to make a night attack with both his artillery and infantry in his official account of the battle general kershaw who with cobb's georgia and ransom's north carolina brigades repulsed during the day every attack of the enemy and especially meagre's great charge says mary's hill covered with our batteries then occupied by the washington artillery falls off abruptly towards fredericksburg to a stone wall which forms a terrace on the side of the telegraph road which winds along the foot of the hill this road is about twenty-five feet wide and is faced by a stone wall about four feet high on the city side the road having been cut out of the side of the hill in many places is not visible above the surface of the ground the land falls off rapidly to almost a level surface which extends to about one hundred fifty yards then with another abrupt fall of a few feet to another plain which extends some two hundred yards and then falls off abruptly to a wide ravine i found on my arrival that cobb's brigade occupied our entire front and that my troops could only get into position by doubling on them this was accordingly done and the foundation along the line during the engagement was four deep as an evidence of the coolness of the command i may mention here that notwithstanding their fire was the most rapid and continuous i ever witnessed not a man was injured by the fire of his comrades under cover of his artillery fire a most formidable column of attack was formed and emerging from the ravine impetuously assailed our whole front the attack was continuous some few officers and men got within thirty yards of our lines but in every instance their column was shattered by the time they got within one hundred paces it was just before this charge that general lee anxious about his center rode up to mary's heights and after a long examination with his field glass turned to general longstreet and said those people are throwing their whole weight on this point 
do you think you can hold a position without reinforcement? General, answered the corps commander, every inch of the ground is so covered by guns and musketry that a chicken could not live to reach that sunken road. Colonel Stevens of the 13th N.H. Infantry, who acted as reserve and witnessed the successive charges on Mary's Heights, reports under date of December 22, 1862. As yet, all the accounts that I have seen or read from Union or Rebel sources approach not in delineation the truthful and terrible panorama of that day. Twice during the day I rode up Caroline Street to the center of the city toward the point where our brave legions were struggling against the terrible concentration of the enemy's artillery and infantry, whose unremitting fire shook the earth and filled the plain in the rear of the city with the deadly missiles of war. I saw the struggling hosts of freedom stretched along the plain, their ranks plowed by the merciless fire of the foe. I listened to the roar of battle and groans of the wounded and dying. I saw in the crowded hospitals the desolation of war, but I heard from our brave soldiers no note of triumph, no word of encouragement, no syllable of hope that for us a field was to be won. In the stubborn, unyielding resistance of the enemy, I could see no point of pressure likely to yield to the repeated assaults of our brave soldiers. For three quarters of an hour before we were ordered into action, I stood in front of my regiment on the brow of the hill and watched the fire of the rebel batteries as they poured shot and shell from sixteen different points upon our devoted men on the plains below. It was a sight magnificently terrible. Every discharge of the enemy's artillery and every explosion of his shells was visible in the dusky twilight of that smoke-crowned hill. There his direct and enfilading batteries, with a vividness, intensity, and almost the rapidity of lightning, hurled the messengers of death in the midst of our brave ranks, vainly struggling through the murderous fire to gain the hills and the guns of the enemy nor was it a struggling or ill-directed fire the arrangements of the enemy's guns were such that they could pour their concentrated and incessant fire upon any point occupied by our assailing troops and all of them were fired with the greatest skill and precision during all of this time the rattle of musketry was incessant then came an order for our brigade to fall in silently but unflinchingly the men moved out from their cover and when the line was formed started in a run and the pace was so rapid that many of the men relieved themselves of their blankets and haversacks the words forward charge rang out we crossed the railroad and low muddy swamp on the left all the time the enemy concentrating their terrible fire by batteries and pouring in on our advancing line suddenly the cannonading and musketry of the enemy ceased the shouts of our men were also hushed and nothing was heard along the line save the command forward men close up steady in this manner we continued in the direction of the enemy's batteries until we got within twenty yards of the celebrated stone wall behind that wall and in rifle pits on its flanks were posted the enemy's infantry according to their statement four ranks deep and on the hill a few yards above lay in ominous silence their death-dealing artillery it was while we were moving steadily forward that with one startling crash with one simultaneous sheet of fire and flame they hurled on our advancing lines the whole terrible force of their infantry and artillery fire the powder from their musketry seemed to burn in our very faces and the breath of their artillery was hot upon our cheeks the leaden rain and iron hail in an instant forced back the advancing lines upon those who were close to them in the rear 
and before the men could be rallied to renew the charge the lines had been hurled back by the irresistible fire of the enemy to the cover of the ravine or gully which they had just passed the enemy swept the grounds with their guns killing and wounding many of the three brigades participating in that charge in the space of a few minutes the awful loss was one thousand two hundred twenty six lying on the field burnside from his post of vantage in the belfry of the courthouse seemed to have gone mad in this carnival of death when french's division withered away he sent his aide colonel taylor to hancock to put everything in in his frantic desire to carry the heights he sent in successively the divisions of french hancock howard sturgis burney griffin and humphreys in all twenty brigades or one hundred two regiments of the thousands who rushed for that fatal stone wall with desperate determination not one reached it alive it will never be known how many times the union troops made the attack their advance was like the billows breaking into atoms on a rock the last charges were feeble for the troops had to push their way over the prostrate lines of their comrades who were first sent in and who after being repulsed had thrown themselves flat on the ground to escape the scathing pitiless fire that swept the plain many brigade official reports speak of these prostrate soldiers begging their advancing line to retreat even going so far as to grasp the legs of the men of the moving column and prevent them obeying orders from a thousand throats would come the cry go back go back it's certain death to advance and the piles of dead gave fearful emphasis to the cry in a space of four hundred yards by about eight hundred yards lay the bodies of thousands the official records show that these seven divisions lost in killed and wounded in their attack on mary's hill eight thousand seven hundred eighty nine men the regiment that went the farthest dared the most and died with their feet touching the stone wall was the sixty ninth new york of meagre's irish brigade the following is the report of captain james saunders commanding the regiment camp near falmouth virginia december twenty two eighteen sixty two in compliance with general orders i hereby certify that the sixty ninth new york volunteers entered the battle of fredericksburg on december thirteenth eighteen sixty two with eighteen commissioned officers and two hundred ten rank and file in which they lost sixteen commissioned officers and one hundred sixty rank and file leaving me lieutenants milliken and brennan to bring the remnant fifty-two men off the battlefield Ah. They were men, those lads of 69th. In that olden and glorious time, we Rebs would have taken off our hats and bowed low before the survivors of that gallant regiment, the bravest of the brave. End of chapter 33